Well, welcome to episode 99 of The Professor and the Hack. I'm the Hack, Hugh Remington, the Professor Peter Van Onselen joins me. And Peter, um, they call it the killing season for a reason, and we've seen another mm. leader chop down. So we're really, uh, we're going to dedicate our, our podcast to Barnaby and the consequences of Barnaby's return. First of all, did you see it coming? Well, I saw it coming in the sense that I knew that the Phil Curry article on the weekend wasn't, you know, if you like, all hot air, far from it. Uh, did I see him having the numbers to win after a spill? No, but it was a distinct possibility. And the reason I say that, and, and we'll go through this, is because the odds were really in favour, I thought, of either Barnaby falling short of the spill or if he got over the line on the spill, McCormick dropping out and a third way candidate coming through in the shape of David Littleproud and winning a spill against Barnaby Joyce by carving off a few of the voters who were unhappy with McCormick's performance and therefore voted for the spill, but weren't really fans of Barnaby Joyce and would have rather see the back of McCormick, but not go to Barnaby. And I think that was always, if you like the strategy of David Littleproud, even though he was not in any real active way, to my knowledge at least, being disloyal to Michael McCormick, far from it. But it just seemed like the logical thing to do. But this is the National Party, Hugh, and the problem with the Nats often is that they're not actually that politically organised. Uh, it's more of a gentleman's party, not just in terms of gender representation, but in terms of actions. And so Little Proud didn't do enough planning and there wasn't obviously a dialogue between him and McCormick to make that happen. So my understanding is that the spill motion got up but then McCormick, who had said he has to be blasted out, he just then ran again after the spill motion in the actual leadership showdown. And that was always going to result in him losing. He was trying to stare down the Barnaby Joyce supporters and say, well, okay, fine. You, you've shown, if you like, uh, a, a lack of faith in my leadership by voting for the spill motion. But let's see if you're now prepared to put this guy back into the deputy prime ministership. I think I might be able to carve you off myself. That didn't happen. Barnaby Joyce is now the deputy prime minister. He's been sworn in before we do this podcast. But that was where I was thinking this was going to go. But as it turns out, either a lack of coordination between David Littleproud and Michael McCormick or indeed just stubbornness from Michael McCormick, as much as he's shown a lot of grace through this process, it resulted in a second showdown after the spill and the numbers, not that the Nats released the exact numbers, but the numbers presumably reflected the spill motion and once again saw Barnaby Joyce win. Sure. So we'll get to the consequences of what Barnaby will mean in the system, and they are quite profound. But just to dwell on that for a second, the spill motion would have required the same majority as the leadership vote, presumably 11 out of yes. the 21. So McCormack, this really goes to political thinking. McCormack sees that he's got a majority of the party room once his leadership vacated, but did not have it in him or had not organized or had not seen it coming sufficiently or for any other reason, stubbornness is a, is a motivation you point to, did not say, look, I'm a shot duck, but if I don't want Barnaby, the only thing to do is to, is to step aside and, and see if there's a, a little proud option. Uh, by standing, he essentially, once he'd lost the spill motion, he pretty much guaranteed a Barnaby win. 
Yeah, and, and there were a few comparison points of this. And I think I think it's also a bit of political naivety or a lack of thought. And it's also a little bit of Michael McCormick maybe thinking that David Littleproud didn't have his back as much as he could or should have as deputy because he wasn't ringing around on McCormick's behalf. So therefore McCormick stood again. And the parallels historically, not within the Nats, but compared to the Libs, for example, come in on two fronts. Had it been done successfully to deny Barnaby Joyce, it would have been not dissimilar to when Scott Morrison came through the middle, when you had the showdown between Malcolm Turnbull and Peter Dutton. And after Malcolm Turnbull lost that spill motion, then Turnbull stands aside and it was contested by Scott Morrison as well as Julie Bishop, but she didn't get anywhere on it. And Scott Morrison came through the middle and won. That that was what could have happened successfully for David Littleproud and didn't. The other one, which is the unsuccessful comparison, was actually going right back to when Malcolm Turnbull lost the leadership in 2009 to Tony Abbott. At that point in time, everybody expected that it would be Joe Hockey that would win. But there was a successful spill motion away from Turnbull's leadership to having a spill, and then the theory was supposed to be that you would then have Joe Hockey running against uh, against Tony Abbott and bringing back votes away from Tony Abbott. But that didn't happen because Malcolm Turnbull did contest and Joe Hockey came third. And that is what would have happened to David Littleproud had he thrown his hat into the ring as well as Michael McCormick because he wouldn't have had the numbers to get over the top of either of them. So it ultimately was the, the proverbial cluster you-know-what as far as David Littleproud would be concerned, or as far as the anti-Barnaby Joyce forces would be concerned. I would suspect that, who knows what the numbers were, but even if it was as close as 11 to 10, I would suspect there were people that ultimately voted for Barnaby Joyce after the spill motion who would have preferred David Littleproud, but he wasn't a candidate, so therefore they got Barnaby Joyce. Mm, fascinating. All right. Well, as we discussed in our last podcast, the National Party matters as part of the coalition. Explain to me what a coalition agreement is. Well, the coalition agreement is the Nationals and the Liberals, and it's really their respective leaders having what is always secret, an agreement over what the carve-up of various things are, whether it's policy, personnel on the front bench, allocation of portfolios, you name it. It's an agreement between the two parties via the two leaders over how they will govern together. And the rules of it, informally, the rules of it are that whenever there's a new leader, there's a new coalition agreement. And Barnaby Joyce was very keen to make that point after he won the Nationals' leadership, which is that there'll need to be a new coalition agreement. So now Barnaby Joyce at some point, uh, sooner rather than later, one imagines, will have to sit down with the Prime Minister. He'll have to do it virtually, by the way, Hugh, unless they wait a while, because of course, let's not forget, the Prime Minister has been stuck behind the glass in quarantine uh, at the lodge during all of this. But there will be a discussion between those two, and they will come up with a new coalition agreement. And we will get to this, I know, but you would think one of the factors that will be discussed in that will be this net zero emissions target for 2050. Also an allocation of portfolios. We're going to see at some point a reallocation of portfolios, new personnel step into the front bench. Now that you've got a new nationals leader within the nationals orbit, people are talking about everyone from Matt Canavan returning to Bridget McKenzie. People say Darren Chester is on the outer and likely to lose his front bench position. All of that uh, will in some form, we assume be part of this new coalition agreement, but the important point is we won't actually know what is in that coalition agreement because it always remains secret unless they break convention. The, the most the most 
undemocratic aspect of governance in Australia is the fact that we don't know what are the terms of this key coalition agreement. We never will. And it gets locked in between the and leaders. Let's make a quick- yep, go on. Yeah, it does. And I was just going to say, let's make a quick point. It often includes things like, uh, you know, the quota for the number of nationals that get front bench positions. It, it almost always includes that. Now, I've always found that ironic that there is a quota for front bench nationals, yet the nationals are at the vanguard of being against gender quotas, for example, because they say that it doesn't put merit first, even though they embrace a quota every time they have a national party agreement with the Liberal Party. Let's talk now to the electoral effect because Barnaby Joyce was returned after a spill was moved by the Queensland Senator Matt Canavan, who's basically, uh, you know, the backbench spruker for mining, mining, mining. Uh, He said, quote, Barnaby has the fight we need to protect regional Queensland jobs and interests. So in a sense, this was a Queensland push uh, that came. What will be the electoral effect, given that we're hearing from National Party women and former National Party women say they're disappointed with this result, that, that Barnaby has this perceived women's problem, and yet he's perceived as being strong in regional Queensland. Well, I, I mean, dare I use the term, but I think there will be both a macro and a micro effect. And let me explain why. I think that in the bigger picture, the macro picture, the negative of a Barnaby Joyce return is very much things like what happens with the female vote. Uh, Indeed, what happens with city votes for the Liberals as a result of Barnaby Joyce coming back as the Deputy Prime Minister. So, firstly, are there women who were still voting coalition or voting Liberal even, not just nationals, who will now no longer potentially vote that way because of the return of Barnaby Joyce? And we can go through why uh, if we have time. That's an interesting question because there could be some that fall into that, that category. Another theory, though, is that all the return of Barnaby Joyce will do is it will lock in women who have already been turned off the Liberal Party for all manner of issues, uh, whether it's the Porter saga, whether it's the Brittany Higgins situation, you name it. Uh, maybe there are women that were already gone because of those factors who are now just absolutely gone. That is what Scott Morrison and Barnaby Joyce will be hoping because they won't want to lose any more votes. But the risk for them is that there will be more women uh, who are still prepared to hang on to the coalition, but not when you remove Michael McCormick and replace him with someone like Barnaby Joyce. That's that's the first potential effect. The other one is, of course, inner city seats, or indeed any city seat of the Liberal Party. And that's where people like Jason Falinski have been outspoken, and other Liberals certainly behind the scenes have been outspoken. They're worried that their credentials in some inner city electorates, even though Barnaby Joyce leads the Nationals, he doesn't lead the Liberal Party, their worry is that because they're in coalition, there could be a negative effect on the Liberals' vote in some inner city seats on issues like climate change or indeed broader issues that matter to them where they think that Barnaby Joyce takes the coalition back to the Stone Age rather than keeping them in the modern sphere. So they're the two elements of the, the potential macro impact with some micro, but the real issue which I think will be interesting to watch at that seat by seat micro level is what happens in some of these areas like North Queensland and the Hunter where Barnaby Joyce could well, which is almost counterintuitive to a lot of the commentariat, could be his return could be a benefit a benefit to the coalition rather than a negative because he does fight harder in those areas. He is seen, unlike Michael McCormick, as standing up uh, to inner city interests, not just to the Liberal Party, and therefore it could embolden the vote of both Liberals and Nationals 
fighting for seats in mining communities. And it's, 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 there's a lot of moving parts to this. So it's, it's going to be so fascinating to see the impact. Yeah, I mean, one of the things on, on the gender thing, what struck me is I went back to look at the New England result. So that's the seat that Barnaby Joyce holds himself. And at the last election in 2019, he'd already suffered his, you know, his horrific disgrace as Annis Horribilis. Mm. Um, he'd been flung from the, the, from the deputy prime ministership. There was the bonking band brought in. His affair with Vicky Campion, now his partner, had been revealed. Uh, the, the loss of his marriage all of that thing, which matters more for him as a kind of a stout, uh, rural, conservative and Catholic. Um, and yet, when it came to the vote, his primary vote went up. Uh, now, in part, that was due to the fact that Tony Windsor, his long uh, yes. bet noir in that area, had chosen not to stand. And I'm sure that was a factor. But but it, this simply was not the evidence that there was going to be a calamitous exit of women voting uh, against Barnaby Joyce because of his his record, it didn't happen, and it just, uh, yeah, that, that's very yeah. Go on. Sorry, Hugh, I was just going to say that, that that is, I think, very true. I do think that two factors that are significant. One that you that you mentioned is not having uh, Tony Windsor in the contest. I think he is, is significant, even though he was nowhere in 2016. He still would have bled votes from Barnaby, which then came back in 2019, notwithstanding all of Barnaby Joyce's problems at the time that that you mentioned. But the other factor, which I think you can't underestimate is just the reality that a local MP gets more ambit and more tolerance for their failings from local constituents who know the person because they're the local member. I would say the same thing about Peter Dutton in his seat of Dixon. You know, I mean, he, he was seen as a potential risk for the Liberals had he won the leadership over Scott Morrison around the country uh, for various, you know, sort of constituencies but he hasn't been that and wasn't that even at the 2019 election in his particular electorate where he is quite well liked because he's so well known and he's held the electorate for a while. So uh, we've got to be a little bit careful to assume that the Barnaby Joyce factor in his local electorate can play out everywhere. But having said that, uh, in 2016, uh, it was Barnaby Joyce who held up the vote for the coalition, not Malcolm Turnbull for the Liberals. You know, there, there wasn't a single national seat lost in 2016. And in fact, they won one, uh, which is what I think was Capricornia. They won it and that got them back to where they needed to be, to be able or held it at least when they weren't expected to, uh, to get back to where they needed to be, to be able to have that single seat majority in 2016, even though they bled votes all over the place because of uh, Malcolm Turnbull. Well, what does it mean for climate change policy? What does it mean for religious freedom policy? What does it mean even for the family from Biloela? Well, discuss that in just a moment let's take a quick break welcome back this is episode 99 by the way of uh, the professor and the hack thanks for staying with us uh in our in little honor journey of prince if you philip have. yes in honor of prince philip you didn't quite make it to 100, unfortunately. We'll see if we can get to 100 in the next week or so. And by the <laughs> way, if you'd like to uh, send in some questions, uh, you know, if you want to quiz us, or more accurately, the professor, I suppose, um, send us on Twitter, if you're on Twitter, to 10speaks. If you've got questions for our episode 100, and uh, we'll try to answer answer them. That's for, that's for next time. So let's get back to the key issue is because it is climate change and the thing which mm. really triggered this was keith pitt 
the National Front Bencher coming out last week and saying that uh, the framing that Scott Morrison has been using, that uh, Australia is committed to uh, net zero emissions as soon as possible, preferably by 2050, was not acceptable to the National Party and that they had not signed up to it. So now we've got Barnaby Joyce, presumably put in there because um, he's expected to do something different to Michael McCormack in this space. What is he going to do that's different and what impact will that have on climate change policy? Look, it's fascinating because Michael McCormick was also uh, against moving to a 2050 emissions net zero target, but he was perceived by a lot of nationals as a bit weak on it and perhaps someone who might be, if you like, run over by Scott Morrison in the authority stakes such that Scott Morrison could crab walk the coalition to some version of a net zero emissions target by 2050, you know, maybe with some caution around the rhetoric, you know, let's preferably get there uh, is some of the rhetoric that we've, that we've heard being used by the prime minister and others. Uh, the difference with Barnaby Joyce is in the degrees, but they're important. So it, it may not have happened under Michael McCormick. We heard Keith Pitt mouthing off last week about not wanting to get there and how it's not coalition policy at the moment. And it's not. The difference with Barnaby Joyce is now the idea of the coalition embracing a net zero emissions target by 2050 is dead, buried and cremated. It is all over Red Rover, done, dusted, finished, kaput. There is no chance that a coalition with the Nationals with Barnaby Joyce's leader, will in any way, shape or form get bullied, cajoled, convinced, arm-twisted towards that target. No way. It's not going to happen. So now we know that when the Prime Minister or whoever his representative is, if he doesn't do it himself, goes to Glasgow in November, Australia will not be embracing that target. There will be a split in the coalition if Scott Morrison tries to, and he won't want that, so he won't try to. It is now over, and we have a scenario where, like it or not, we have a government as a coalition government that will not embrace that target. And that will be the policy that they have to take to the next election as a coalition. So what does that actually mean? Because uh, the target is one thing uh, that one of the arguments that Scott Morrison has made is that we're going to meet targets in a canter because technology is coming on and, and we're going to reach it anyway. So talking about targets matters less than people assume that they do. That is his argument. So, or has been his argument in the past, does it matter in fact, in terms of what Australia is doing towards reducing its emissions? Um, is it irrelevant? Or in fact, does this actually become a critical moment? Potentially we'll look back and say that was the great lost opportunity, yet another lost opportunity when Barnaby Joyce, the man who with Scott Morrison carried coal through the seats of parliament, through the benches of, of the parliament house, um, when he was returned to office? Oh, it matters, uh, and I'll go through why. But let's all, let me also say this just as a caveat in case Media Watch is listening because months from now I'm wrong and Barnaby Joyce capitulates and they do take that target. For that to happen, it would be utterly humiliating for Barnaby Joyce and it would be the ultimate of backdowns. And we know that he does go from being a maverick on the back bench to playing ball a lot more when he's on the front bench historically. That was his track record when he entered the front bench at various moments rather than was just a backbencher pushing various issues, not just this issue, but it would be a huge capitulation and I just can't see it. So we will 
you know, we'll wait and watch. But it matters to you because it matters to business confidence, to investment in renewables, uh, and therefore to the drive towards it. So it slows that down to some extent. I mean, it, it will keep happening because in a sense, the private sector have gone there even if the government doesn't. But it does make it that little bit harder and it makes the business case for it, for organisations to do it a little bit harder. And if the government isn't bullish about it, then it just makes it a little bit slower with that transition. So it matters in that sense. But you know, we, we need to make this observation. This is where the National Party has really shifted. People often don't think about this or even realise this, but the Farmers' Federation of Australia are in favour of that target. The Business Council of Australia are in favour of that target. A number of the big miners are even in favour of embracing that target. But the National Party room clearly is not. And that puts them out of step with a lot of people, but they have the power through the coalition agreement to demand it. So for the Labor Party, does this represent an opportunity or a trap? Both, I think. It's a, <laughs> it's a trap seat by seat uh, in some of these mining communities where it's possible now for the coalition, whether it's a Nat running or a Liberal running, to carve off, you know, for example, Joel Fitzgibbon's electorate, uh, both if he runs, but particularly if he doesn't run, but also uh, nearby seats in the Hunter. There are two that are in play. It, it's, a, it's a possibility of them retaining seats that would otherwise be difficult to hold in far north Queensland. It could work for the Liberals, even though there are, there are no federal seats for the Nationals, over in WA, which is so strongly dependent on the mining community for its economic prosperity. So it, it's it's a trap for Labor in those seats, but it's also an opportunity because it, it could create a wave of discontent with the coalition potentially, which means seat by seat ceases to matter when there is a move on as a wave. But we'll have to wait to see if that's the case. I'm doubtful whether that will be the case. Uh, so, so it is both an opportunity and a trap for the Labor Party. Uh, Anthony Albanese needs to be careful in how he manages this particularly as a factional member of the left before becoming leader uh, with a party which therefore has the left being dominant factionally now because of having Anthony Albanese as its leader at the moment. So another element which is plainly part of the expectations by some of those Queensland Nats is that Barnaby Joyce will become publicly uh, an advocate for that that other great shibboleth, the coal-fired power station, uh, the, the, the demothballing of Collinsville just inland from Bowen is always cited as being mm. uh, the most likely uh, proposal. Ken O'Dowd, who's a member for Flynn up there, says we might need more than one coal-fired power station. Is this realistically, do you think, going to be National Party policy? And could it even, uh, well, if it's policy, it's government policy, I guess, could it be written into the coalition agreement as well? That I'm much more sceptical about. I mean, Liberals are already saying there's no way that that will happen. I can't imagine that Scott Morrison will go there. I don't think it'll be able to be part of the coalition agreement. What he can perhaps do is just simply make soundings to the idea that, well, if the economics changes and a coal-fired power station stacks up, then we'll consider it. But that's as far as he would go. The economics don't add up. They're not likely to. They're likely to add up less, not more, as the passage of time continues. So I don't think mind that's you, Mind you, they've always option. argued. I mean, the whole basis is that they've argued against reality that the economics are entirely in support <laughs> of a coal-fired power station. In fact, that you know that that has been a central argument for years for those who've been of that faction that has been spruiking this. So how does he walk away from that? He can't say if the economics add up because his, that base within the national says, well, well, no, it doesn't, you know, don't look at the numbers, the economics add up. Mm. 
I think all that Barnaby Joyce will do on that front, and that is where he goes from being the maverick to the insider, all I think he'll do to try to walk both sides of the line on this is he'll continue to say, look, it's National Party policy to push for these, but we are the junior coalition partner. We can only do what we can achieve in a coalition, and we will continue to make the case inside the coalition government. And that's as far as it gets, would be my argument. Now, it could then become a case of that to be as far as it gets with Barnaby Joyce being pragmatic behind the scenes, it could be that he then is able to extract other things as part of this new coalition agreement from the the Liberals and therefore from Scott Morrison. So, for example, the reallocation of portfolios is going to be fascinating. Barnaby Joyce has made a lot of soundings that he wants more economic portfolios to go to the nationals. And the key one within that that he's talking about is something like trade. So Dan Tien, a liberal, a rural liberal, but a liberal nonetheless out of Victoria, holds the trade portfolio. And the nationals usually hold the trade portfolio and have done so over many years. You know, Mark Vale was very dominant as trade minister during the Howard years. I could easily see Barnaby Joyce wanting the trade portfolio back, not taking it for himself, but maybe giving it to his deputy uh, in a reshuffle, uh, David Littleproud. That would be one thing that could be on the agenda as a trade-off um, for the Nationals just having to accept that as the junior coalition partner, they don't get uh, you know, more investment in, in a new coal mine. Could I ask you what you think Darren Chester, uh, what role he might potentially play? So he's, he's a front bencher. Uh, there have been hints mm. that he could uh, defect to the Liberal Party uh, because he's no fan of Barnaby Joyce's. Um, if he was to defect to the Liberal Party, then plainly the numbers in the two party rooms get shifted. And with that shift, it reduces the quotas that are available to the National Party to demand certain portfolios. So although he's He's pretty quiet and he's, he's generally acted in um, over, over years in a very principled way. It does give him significant leverage if he wants to be a player in some of these decisions, doesn't it? Even so, I just think Darren Chester's goose is cooked uh, as a front bench. Now, I might be wrong, but, you know, whether you like it or not in these showdowns, inevitably there are favours and deals that have to get paid back in the aftermath of who wins and who loses. And with Barnaby Joyce winning, one assumes that Bridget McKenzie comes back, you know, post-sports rorts. She was, you know, well, she still does hold a leadership position in the Senate uh, and she was a cabinet minister. Now, Darren Chester's not even a cabinet minister. He's a junior minister with veteran affairs. He's a Victorian. So is Bridget McKenzie, even though she's in the Senate and he's in the House. That's an easy swap, I think, for Barnaby Joyce. But the thing he has to be careful of, which is, of course, your point, Hugh, is that if Darren Chester were to defect the Liberal Party, then that also then can change the number of spots that the coalition, that the Nationals rather, have within the coalition in terms of front benches as part of that quota because they have a smaller party room by one if they lose Darren Chester. It'd be a big call, though, for him to defect to the Liberal Party. So we'll see if that does happen or not. But I think either way, it would be a surprise for him to hold a front bench position because Barnaby Joyce needs to pay people back. I hear that Bridget McKenzie's at the at the front of that. Uh, another one would be Matt Canavan. I mean, he was a cabinet minister previously. He stepped aside. He was also chief of staff to Barnaby Joyce before he entered parliament himself. You would think he would come back, but there's been some talk that he doesn't mind biding his time on the back bench because of practicalities around who's in and who's out. Another one is David Gillespie. He attended the swearing in of 
Barnaby Joyce uh, is one of the few nationals who did. Uh, he's on the back bench, but he's previously held assistant ministerial portfolios. He could be part of a minor reshuffle as well. So just that that, that reality of payback and, and positions that, that therefore fluctuate will have an impact on a number of positions. But I think Darren Chester is right at the vanguard of the impact it'll have. A couple of quick policy questions. Uh, Barnaby Joyce, to the surprise of some, came out with a sympathetic take on the Biloela family, uh, suggesting they should return to Biloela. Um, will that die, will that run out into the sand now that he's in a leadership position? That is the kind of one that could do exactly that, Hugh. Uh, I hope not for the Biloela family, and I hope not for Barnaby Joyce's integrity. He was so big on it. But I could easily imagine that happening. The reason I say that is because we've mentioned before, he is a maverick who often then has less maverick tendencies once he gets inside the tent and decides in that role uh, to sort of run the argument that, okay, I'm now inside the tent, I'll have to give up a few things. He could argue that he's been given more information as a member of the executive than he otherwise had about the Billawila family, so therefore he will tolerate the half-baked solution of them continuing to live in Perth. But this will be a matter for him. That 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 is one where he, I think, will take it or leave it, uh, and we just can't be sure which way he goes. Again, the Billa Wheeler family get uh, kicked to the curb on the, uh, yeah. in, the, in the political uh, calculations that get made. And the other one is religious freedoms. He's been strong on, um, on wanting to, uh, uh, you know, in this debate about whether it's a shield or a sword, the religious freedom uh, review that was done by Philip Ruddock and, and ultimately sort of worked its way through the system, those who were of a religious bent felt that it didn't go far enough, uh, and he has certainly spoken on that. Is is that the kind of issue that he's likely to make a fuss on, or is that another one that will get kicked to the curb? I think that's another one that gets kicked to the curb, at least as far as contestation between Libs and Nats go, or between Barnaby Joyce and, and anyone else on the front bench, until after the election. I mean, don't forget... Barnaby Joyce has two goals in taking over as Deputy Prime Minister and Nationals Leader. First and foremost amongst them is net zero emissions, I would argue. Second to that is winning the election. And then third is that he hopes post-winning the election to hold the Deputy Prime Ministership and Nationals Leadership for as long as he can. And that at that point in time where they've got, if they win, a locked-in three years in government, then you can expect... Barnaby Joyce to become more bullish, I would argue. And, and that goes to the, the broader change that he, I believe, will be looking to make now that he's back in charge of the National Party. He, his view, which I don't think will just lock in as a long-term maverick view, but will persist now that he has a leadership position. His view since losing his position has been that the Nationals are capitulating too much, that Michael McCormick is too weak. He's almost been critical of past Nationals leaders like John Anderson, who tried to come back in the Senate and failed a pre-selection in New South Wales just the other day, he will try, I believe, to shift the Nationals in the power dynamic with the Liberal Party to what they were in years gone by in the 60s, the 70s and the 80s, rather than what they were in the 90s and the noughties. Uh, that is going to be the long-term change that Barnaby Joyce tries to institute in the power structure between Liberals and Nationals. But that's a post-election power play in any meaningful sense. He won't want to do too much of that if he thinks doing it costs them the election. I think you make a very good point. We could have Barnaby uh, as the Deputy Prime Minister for years into the future, uh, particularly on climate change policy, having a significant say. Uh, 
let's leave it there. We'll have much more to talk about uh, in in our next podcast as well as uh, Parliament rises for the long break. Peter Van Onselen, the Prof. Thanks so much again. Great chatting as good chatting as always, Hugh. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.